Okay, here we have, of course, the account of the temptation of Adam and Eve and what we call the fall, the great rebellion in the kingdom. God is king. He has established his earthly kingdom. He has put Adam and Eve in charge over it as vice regents to rule over it. And now they have rebelled. And on the face of it, it seems that God's kingdom is being threatened. The background to this is in chapter 2. If you'd like to look there for a reminder, verses 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it, to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's a simple, clear uh, command, one prohibition, it was fair, in fact it was even generous, you may eat of every tree of the garden, just not this one, and in fact it goes more further than that, it does not tell him only that you must um, not eat of that one tree, but he tells him you must, he, he's put him in the garden to work it and to keep it, that is, keep it and protect it from anything contrary to God's command, God's purpose, the order that God has established, anything that would detract from God's glory, protect, keep the garden. You're in charge here. You're king. Watch over it. Don't let anything come in to defile it. Well, that's the background in chapter 2. And now we come to chapter 3 that we've just read. A couple of questions by way of introduction. What is the tree of knowledge, of the knowledge of good and evil? We've talked about that uh, before somewhat uh, when we looked at chapter 2, but just quickly to mention here, it's not, I don't think, a special kind of tree or anything like that. I think it's one of every tree of the garden. Um, it's just one that God singled out as with symbolic value. I don't think there's any magical or intrinsic power to the tree. It's symbolic. It's not intrinsically evil. It's just a test case that God has established, don't eat that tree. Now, what does it mean, then, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Other Old Testament references to this idea of knowing good or knowing or understanding good and evil have the idea of discerning between them. And so I think the sense here is that of moral autonomy, that it's called today epistemological independence, that you can know on your own. That you have the authority by yourself to make these kinds of judgments. So the tree of life symbolized God's uh, continued of giving life. And now the tree of knowledge of good and evil symbolized, if eaten, would symbolize Adam striking out on his own, uh, rejecting his creaturely dependence upon God, his submission to God, his obligations to God, and striking out on his own to determine what is good and what is evil, what is right, what is wrong, and so on. So this is a test case. Will Adam live under God as his obedient creature? That's what's set up for us. Next question, who is the serpent? We saw that last week. I evidently wasn't as clear as I could have been because there were still a couple of questions afterward. I think the serpent is simply a metaphorical designation for Satan himself, 
who appears as probably an angel of light. I think that's Paul's reference in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, and that's the way the serpent is identified in Revelation chapter 20. He is that old serpent who is the devil, Satan. Um, I don't think that Eve was talking to a snake. I don't think that she was talking to a snake about morals and ethics and heavenly values. I think she was talking to an angelic being. I don't think, some have, many have taken this uh, route to say that Satan was using a snake and speaking through him. I suppose that's a possibility. I don't think that's what's going on. Satan, anyway, at any rate, is the whole subject of the conversation in the, in the verses that follow. The judgment that is pronounced is pronounced on Satan. He will be utterly defeated. All right, that's last week. All right, now let's take some time and look at the next question. What are the tactics? What are the tactics that Satan used here in the temptation? Now, what's emphasized for us in verse 1 is his craftiness. The word there means just what it says. It's he's shrewd, he's cunning. Uh, actually, the word itself is used, is, is a neutral word. It doesn't have any necessary evil connotations. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, um, this word is used in the sense of prudence as opposed to foolish. Prudent as a way to, as opposed to foolish. But here, obviously, it does have negative connotations, that of being deceiving and deceitful, that Satan now is more than all of the animals. Uh, by the way, in verse 1, the word other, other animals, other is inserted in the translation. That's not in the original. Um, it's an interpretive rendering. But more than all the animals, he is um, uh, cunning, and he's set apart from them in the sense that he's able to deceive and to tempt. And so that's the, that's the tactic now that's coming. He's not a full frontal assault, but he's coming deceitfully and with cunning to trick them. That's the idea. So verses 1 to 5, we have his crafty assault. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you, sh you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So the first tactic here is that he just questions God's word. Has God really said that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, he's not quite um, contradicting God's word yet. He's questioning it. That's a tricky move. And it's an important move. Because what he has done now already is that he has subjected God's word to Eve's judgment. And the roles are reversed. She now sits on top evaluating what God has said and that's the maneuver that he's taken. Now he also distorts God's command a bit and at the same time distorts God's goodness because he doesn't ask simply, has God said that 
you can't eat of that tree? What he says is, has God really said that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? So he's distorted God's word and distorted God's goodness. He's representing this as though God is being abusive, God is being unreasonable, he's got these terrible demands on you, he's distorting it. So the way he's wording his question is a complete misrepresentation of what God had said. He represents God's single prohibition as blanketly oppressive and infringing on her rights. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And in fact, God had told them explicitly, you may eat of all of the trees of the garden, just not that. And what he's doing then in that crafty maneuver is he's evoking resentment on her part, feeling of oppression. She's not getting what she deserves. False feeling of oppression. One commentator remarks here, once Satan can get our eyes on what we cannot do, we're sure to do it. The focus of the Christian should be on all the good that God offers, not on the few restrictions that have goodness of which we may be unaware. And I think that, that gets to it very well. All right, so there's his first move. He, he distorts God's goodness and his command. He questions God's command. Now, at first, Eve seems to correct Satan in her response. We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the trees of the garden, but God said, You should not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. There's been a lot of discussion here. Is Eve adding to God's word? If you go back to chapter 2, verse 15 and 17 that we read earlier, it doesn't say you shouldn't touch it, it says you can't eat it. Is she adding to God's word here? She may be. Is this an embellishment? Of, is she already slipping and embellishing God's one prohibition? I don't know. Maybe this, maybe it's not, maybe it is. Most tend to think that it is, and on the face of it, it does look like it. But at first, at least, she seems to be correcting Satan. He's told us we could have all of them, just not that one. And also now in verse 4, another tactic Here he comes with a frontal assault. He contradicts. He denies God's word. You will not surely die. Here he plants that seed of doubt in her mind. Independent fact-checkers have checked that command, and we found it not to be true. God, you will not surely die. He also mischaracterizes God's motive. Verse 5. And God knows that when you eat it, you'll be like him. He's just trying to save all the good stuff for him, for himself. It was a deliberate lie on God's part. You won't surely die. He's just selfish, he's jealous, he's afraid to share with you what you deserve. And you see what he's doing in his cunningness and his craftiness. He's playing to her selfish ambitions, playing to her pride, her sense of 
what she deserves. It's a direct challenge now at this point of God's authority. He did not say you will surely die. It's not true. It's a direct challenge to God's trustworthiness. It's a direct challenge to God's goodness. Ultimately, what's going on here is he's challenging God's lordship. God has made a command. And now you can stand in judgment over that command and you can decide whether it's right or wrong or needs to be followed or not. You see how Satan now has reversed the roles. And the tactic that he uses is you deserve this. God's being jealous to keep the good stuff for himself. This will make you happy. This will make you feel satisfied. You deserve to have this goodness. You deserve to have this freedom. Bruce Waltke makes a remark in one of his uh, books about this event in Genesis chapter 3. This whole idea of be liberated, be free, be happy. And his remark is, whenever you hear that, you hear the hiss of the serpent. Great line. A great warning. He plays to that. You deserve intellectual and moral autonomy. You can make these decisions for yourself. What he doesn't say is, God is God. You can be God. But that's what's in play. He challenges God's lordship and sets up Eve as judge over God's word. And at the end of it all, Satan has at least brought God's word under human subjection. Now, Eve can stand in judgment, evaluating what God has said and whether or not it needs to be followed. In which case, God is no longer the standard of truth. and God is no longer the standard of what is right and wrong. Eve is. What Eve ought to have done at this point is you shut down the conversation. You have no right to question God. God is God. He said what he said. and We are his creature. We are obliged to obey. My highest obligation as a creature to love God with all of my heart, soul, and mind. And instead of that, she discusses the question with the tempter. Now the pointed issue then is what I've said here several times already. Who will be God? Who is going to rule? Whose will is supreme? That's the pointed issue. And that is the heart of every temptation that you and I ever face. Who will be God? Do we know better in this particular instance that God's command doesn't really apply? It's self-evident that God's word is true. It's self-evident because it is God's word that it is authoritative. But from here forward now, God's word is subjected to human scrutiny, left to our evaluation or our approval, and it's for us to determine whether it's authoritative or not. 
And that is a sinful presumption of authority that belongs to God alone. Saying that we're morally autonomous, intellectually autonomous, we can make these decisions on our own. It's in essence saying, I'm not the creature, I'm the creator. She had two choices. She can trust God, believe what he has said, believe that God knows what's best for her, and obey, or she can trust her own judgment over God's, over God's express command, in fact, and disobey. Those are the two choices. And those are the choices we face in every temptation. Who will be God, and am I going to trust God and obey, or am I going to call God a liar and take his position from him? Well, that's the temptation. Well, now, God will not, you will not surely die. God won't bring judgment. So with now the penalty removed, theoretically, the penalty out of the way, She's free to take the fruit. Character of God's in question. The penalty is in question, probably removed. And so now she's free. She can make her own judgment, and she can take the fruit. And so verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And at this point now, we learn that all of this criticism that I've been giving of Eve belongs to Adam as well. He was with her. And what he should have done as the leader in the relationship and as the one who received the command from God to guard and keep the garden, what he should have done is shut down the conversation. He's already failed on his part. He should have admonished his wife. He should have driven out the tempter and said, be done with this, but he didn't. And what we find the New Testament characterized is that although she was deceived and tricked, the implication is his was more of just plain rebellion. And so we have the outcome of it in verses 7 to 12. The eyes of them both were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife had hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. So what is the outcome? What are the consequences of the rebellion that day? Verse 7, first of all, shame. The eyes of them both were opened. They knew that they were naked. Back in chapter 2, verse 25, they knew that they were naked, but they were not ashamed. It was the, uh, there's been now a change of, of disposition. Instead of the blissful um, uh, innocence that they had in their created character, 
that now has been shattered and there's a sense of shame and attempt to cover themselves. Two, second outcome, shame. Number two, guilt. Verses 8 to 10, he hid himself, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord because they're afraid. There's guilt. The implication is that prior to the disobedience, there was fellowship with God. They were happy in his presence that God would maintain fellowship with God in the garden. But now suddenly that's been changed. And there's this element of dread. And they have to run and hide. Implied in all of that is another uh, consequence, and that is alienation from God. That's implied in these verses that we just read. It's also made more explicit in verses 22 to 24, where they're expelled from the presence of God. The cherubim with the flaming swords are placed at the entrance of the garden. The Lord God said, Bless, uh, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also take the tree of life and, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the, at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned away to guard the way to the tree of life. Again, we have now the tree of life. This is a symbolic of the fact that God is the one who gives life. And evidently, taking of the eating of that tree is symbolized the God giving life. In chapter 2 and verse 16, Adam was allowed to eat of every tree of the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, it's often said that Adam never ate of the tree of life. The text doesn't say that. In fact, the text implies that he did. They can eat of every tree, just not the tree of of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, The claim that Adam and Eve never ate of the tree of life rests on the assumption that once once you eat of it, once you eat of it, you live forever. The text doesn't say that either. And we get to chapter 3, verse 22 here. It says, lest he take, his hand, uh, take and eat of the tree of life and live forever. I think the point is that there'll be a discontinuance of, uh, of eating now of that which symbolizes God giving life because he's under a curse and now he will have to face death. More consequences of it all. Verse 8. There's skewed thinking. His thinking now is skewed with reference to God. As a result of sin, his thinking is skewed with reference to God. This is what we've talked about before. Uh, we call, it's called today the noetic effects of sin. It's disturbed the mind so that you can't think of God in right terms. Verse 8, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Did they really think that they could hide from God? You think about it, it's silly. With regard to God, their judgment's been skewed. Verse 12, we have what we've said already about alienation. Their relationship with God is strained, but now verse 12, the relationship with one another is strained. He blames the woman, first of all. The woman that you gave me, she she gave it to me and I, I ate of it. And, of course, what he says is true, factual. Of course, it's not the whole story. The rest of the story is he agreed to it. 
And then Eve's response, of course, was to blame Satan. And so verses 13 and following, we have the judgment pronounced and the curse that we call it. Verses 14 and the judgment on Satan. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. So we have enmity here against humanity, Satan going after humanity, and then promised also his eventual defeat. I think we'll look at this in more detail on another lesson, so I'll leave that there. But here we have God simply pronouncing the eventual judgment of Satan. That's echoed, as I mentioned last week, through the Old Testament, and, um, and then finally in the New Testament it's brought to fruition. Verse 16, judgment on the woman. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. He shall rule over you. So we have two, uh, two prongs to this, if you will. First of all, I'll multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And then second, your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Over you, the two two aspects of judgment with regard to uh, the woman. First of all, pain and childbearing. I take it with that as the complications that come uh, with all of that. And then, secondly, there'll be marital conflict. The battle of the sexes is on. Your you your desire will be contrary to your husband. You'll desire to rule over him, but he'll rule over you. That's the sense of it. Um, If you'd like, look over at chapter 4, verse 7. Here we have God speaking to Cain. And... um, Yeah, verse 7, if you do well, God says to Cain, you, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the, at the door. So sin is wanting to pounce on you. It's metaphorical language here. Then notice the rest of the verse. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. That's the same expression we have in, in chapter 3 now with regard to the woman in verse 16. Sin seeks to rule over you, but you must master it. Chapter 4, and now for the woman, you will seek to rule over your husband, but he will rule over you. We have the battle of the sexes begun, and marital conflict born right here. Uh, There's been a disruption in what was before, a wonderful marriage and a wonderful relationship, but now it's ruined by sin. What was originally her joy and her blessedness of of living and as God's creature, as her man's helpmeet, 
bearing children to, to him as well, all of that now is marred by the curse. So we have the two aspects of her created purpose. To be a helpmeet to her husband, to multiply and fill the earth. Those two aspects of her created being now are marred by a curse. Her relationship with her husband is scarred by pride, and she will bear children, but it will be with pain. And then verses 17 to 19, we have God's judgment on man. To Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till the... Till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Notice again how the punishment related to the offense in, verse, in chapter uh, 1, verses 26 and following. Remember we've seen that uh, Adam was responsible to exercise dominion over the ground, and now there's resistance from the ground. And back in chapter 2, he was responsible not to eat of that tree, and now he will eat from the ground, but it will be with toil and sweat. So you have hard labor because of a cursed ground and resistance of the natural created order around him. Um, It won't produce as readily. You'll have to work it hard. It'll resist. In verse 17, um, or is it verse, it says you will eat of your, in the sweat of your face, so you've got, you've got Adam now in pain in order to make a living. The woman's in pain to bear children. He's in pain to eat. And that, of course, sets the stage for the what we find later in the scriptures with this new heaven and new earth theme we have in the Psalms and the prophets, and then finally in the New Testament, culminating in Revelation, that uh, there'll be no more curse. So we have hard labor imposed with the cursed ground and the resistance of the created order, and then secondly, there's death. You'll return to dust. You are dust, you'll return to dust. It's the necessary consequence of transgressing God's law. That is a capital offense, and you will die. He gave that warning in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, which we saw, and now the sentence is pronounced. Now the question comes up here. Every one of us, I think, asks the question at some point or other, but Adam didn't die that day. God had said in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. There have been a number of ways of how to handle that. Uh, is one of them has been uh, the expression, in the day that you eat of it, you will die, is just an emphatic way of saying you'll surely die. It's a, a colloquialism kind of a thing. I don't know if that's right or not. I, I rather doubt it. Um, but what did happen that day? 
What did happen was he was banished from God's presence. He was alienated from God. And that is what the Bible describes as spiritual death and physical death is a consequence of that. And, of course, is a foreshadowing of eternal death. But we have a terrible irony here. He's a violation of God's command. It does not elevate him to higher status as he had hoped. You'll be like God. But instead, everything's ruined. And the man and the woman now receive judgment with respect to their created roles, their areas of responsibility. She acted independent of her husband. She failed, um, and he failed to lead her as he was responsible to, and now the marriage itself is, is marred by this conflict that's built into it now because of conflicting wills. Her unique design was for bearing children. She will do that now, but that's cursed too. She'll do so in pain and difficulty. His domain was working the ground, and now the ground is cursed. And there'll be resistance from the created order. So those are the consequences of the fall and God's judgment. And add to all of that, I think we should mention one more. I may deal with this in a later lesson as well. That's the notion of inability. Inability. And I say that here because now there's no way for them to get back. They're expelled from the garden, and there's no way they can get back. Throughout the whole Bible now, this theme is the same. There's no way for you to get back unless God himself opens the way and makes it. And that, of course, spells out the gospel story that we'll see. But now we have then all of the creation out of order in conflict. We have Satan against humanity. Humanity reeling from that still today. We find that in Ephesians 6, for example. Our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. It's the rulers of darkness. Find it graphically illustrated in Revelation chapter 12. The dragon chases the people of God off into the wilderness to persecute them. We see it exemplified in the book of Job. Satan going against Job, one of God's faithful men. We have Satan against humanity. We have humanity in in conflict with itself. This contrary natures and disrupted relationships, even violence. And in fact, now the created order is in conflict, conflict with humanity as well. And this is the beginnings of all that we call natural evil. So there's moral evil, sins of injustice, so on. There's natural evil, resistance of the ground, the created order, the upheavals of nature, tornadoes, hurricanes, tsunamis, and all of that. Everything against humanity now. There's a conflict in every order of living, and that at root because man himself is out of sorts with the Creator. Paul deals with that. He'll pick it up in Romans chapter 8. The whole world, the whole creation groans in travail. And the reason for it is because man himself is out of sorts with God, and when man's redemption is complete, then the created order itself will be set right as well. 
Well, we've got some later biblical reflections on this as well. I don't have time to develop, but you might mention, you might uh, jot down if you'd like. The book of Ecclesiastes picks this up at length. of The vanity of this world apart from God, because of the way things are, everything in this world under the sun is worthless. It's like a puff of air. Nothing to it is ultimately worthless, and all is vanity. That's what we have been subjected to, as Paul calls it in Romans chapter 8. And here we have the tracked out for us, the origin of all evil, both moral and natural evil, all of it, every scrap of suffering that you've ever had, every scrap of suffering that humanity has ever borne, tracks back to this event in Genesis chapter 3, when all things have been put out of order, away from the way they were created, Man is out of sorts with God, and now the entire created order is reeling from it. So we've come a long way. By the time we get to the end of chapter 3, we come a long way from chapter 1, verse 31, where God looked at all he created and said it is very good. One question that comes up here then is, what does all of this say about God's rule? We've said that all Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 presents God as king, establishing his earthly kingdom, placing his image bearers as his vice regents over it all. But God is the great king. But now they've rebelled. What does this say now about God's rule? And of course, the answer is, particularly as we find it throughout the rest of the Bible, but even here, God's rule is still firmly intact. He's still the ruler of the creation. He's still just. He's still the jealous God. He's still the judge. And here in verses 14 and following, he calls his creatures into account. He imposes penalties on them. And even though his creatures are in rebellion, he remains the king of his kingdom. And the rest of the story throughout the rest of the Bible was how God reestablishes, or perhaps better, reasserts his rule in the world through this champion that was promised in verse 15. God still rules, but humanity has to live with the consequences of rebellion, and that explains the way things are today. Genesis chapter 3, I think without it, you have no way to understand the world as it is. All right, our time is about up. Any questions? Yes. Yes.